Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. Bilink corneal cross-linking is the only FDA-approved intervention proven to slow or halt progressive keratoconus to help preserve vision. Upwards of 70% of keratoconus patients present in optometry, and thus optometrists serve a critical role in the early diagnosis and collaborative care of these patients. Please visit www.ilinkexpert.com to locate an iLink physician near you. That's www.ilinkexpert.com. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Mitch Ibach. In this episode, Dr. Ibach discusses the specifics of the corneal cross-linking procedure and other surgical techniques used in the treatment of keratoconus. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. Many times we see a condition called pellucid marginal degeneration, and we get confused with even the doctors with pellucid versus keratoconus. Is there really a difference or is it just really a topographical difference from yeah. the topography? Great question and something that I like to kind of debate back and forth. And so pellucid marginal degeneration is a corneal ectasia, meaning the cornea bulges forward. And it happens maybe a little bit later in life, but the end result is still the same. This is a weak cornea that develops kind of a cone. And the biggest difference for diagnosis is what you see on a topographic or elevation map. The cone will be farther inferior Decentered, And so farther inferiorly decentered is going to be the cone in these patients with pellucid marginal degeneration. There are some systemic associations. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a big one that's more common to see pellucid marginal degeneration in. I think the end result is the same. If these patients are progressing, their cone is farther inferior, but it's bulging more, then I think corneal crosslinking is the right treatment for them. And for me and others, I think intrastromal ring segments or intacts can be really helpful for these patients too. But for these patients, I think we want to treat them like a keratoconus patient. I think it, it falls under the umbrella of corneal ectasias. Interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, let's, you'd mentioned refractive surgery before and people could get a side effect to refractive surgery and their cornea starts bulging and getting thinner. And at that time, we uh, we can treat them with uh, cross-linking. Explain the different types of refractive surgery from PRK to RK to SMILE, AK thinner. I mean, all the different types. If you could just explain what they are and what yeah. they mean. Yes. So LASIK is laser in situ keratomalasis. LASIK is the most common refractive surgery in the U.S. at this time. It's the one that most of our patients are going to be familiar with. They have a family member or a friend that have had LASIK. With LASIK, we make a small flap, almost like a pothole. We lift that pothole up, laser comes down, reshapes the cornea, we put the flap back down. LASIK works under the epithelium or the skin of the cornea and, and heals a little bit faster because we don't have to get the eye to heal itself as much. PRK or photorefractive keratectomy is still refractive surgery, 
but we don't make a flap. And so we brush off the front layer of the cornea called epithelium. The epithelium is a barrier to the laser. It gives inconsistent kind of penetration. And so we brush off the epithelium. The laser reshapes the cornea. And then most commonly, some type of healing membrane or lens is put on the cornea afterwards, like a bandage contact. The epithelium then heals under and over top of that. The epithelium can totally regenerate itself. If you brush it all off in seven days for most patients, that tissue can regenerate itself. SMILE or small incision lenticule extraction is the newest FDA approved refractive surgery in the US. And rather than using a laser to make a flap, the laser, a femtosecond laser, makes a disc or lenticule of tissue under the epithelium. The surgeon goes in and makes one superior cut and then removes through that cut the lenticule or disc of tissue and the resultant cornea flattens around it. Those are our three and, and most common utilized ones now. RK or radial keratotomy is mostly archaic now, but surgeons would use a blade and make incisions in a radial pattern, almost like rays on a sunshine. And where that incision was made, the cornea would flatten around it. So most commonly in the circular shape. One of the big reasons that RK is no longer done commonly is because it was very dependent on surgeon, you know, dexterity and precision of how deep they went with the incision, how close the incision got to the pupil, how close the incision was together, the length. It was just not as reproducible as some of the technologies that we have right now. And I think we've learned over time that these are unstable corneas that, you know, are hard to predict. They have changing prescriptions, changing vision, even throughout the day that change with interocular pressure changes or altitude elevation changes. And then finally, AKs is similar to RKs in that surgeons were making an incision. The incision as technology advanced was being done with laser, but also manual or, or with the blade. More arcuate incisions or trying to correct astigmatism with an astigmatic keratotomy or AK. And what's the success rate? Is one better than the other? Now that SMILE is new, what have you found with SMILE? You know, here we are in 2021. How successful is it right now? And, or is it just really surgeon dependent? And it's going to get better as time goes on. Yeah. I'm going to side with what you kind of said at the end. I think it's surgeon dependent. And I think all three of the most common uh, laser corneal refractive surgeries that we have right now being PRK, LASIK, and SMILE can all have the same outcome of fantastic, uncorrected distance visual acuity for our patients. I think all of them are reproducible. All of them are predictable. The healing can be a little bit different. And so of those three, PRK is going to take the longest time to heal. LASIK and SMILE are pretty comparable, maybe just a whisper faster with LASIK. But I think the visual outcomes and the final endpoint can be really good with all three. SMILE, we were part of the FDA clinical trial. We have SMILE in our practice and the refractive precision kind of plotted out is, is very close and similar to what we see with LASIK. Boy, LASIK is, you know, still for most surgeons, probably the fastball or the most common procedure done. Not all, but uh, in our practice, that would still be true. And we're seeing just fantastic visual acuity outcomes with LASIK as well. Why would somebody choose SMILE over LASIK? What advantage yeah. is there? I think of SMILE being brought to market kind of with three key indications or characteristics. 
the goal was to have less damage or less incisions into the corneal nerves. The corneal nerves, having that feedback is what your cornea tells your brain. Your brain then tells your lacrimal functional unit, hey, I'm dry, I need you to make more tears. And so the thought and theory, and, and there's some studies that will kind of confirm this, is that having less corneal incisions or less nerves damaged will lead to less dry eye. And so dry eye is one of the things that can happen after LASIK, not all patients, Patients who have pre-existing dry eye can sometimes have their dry eye though exacerbated or worsened after corneal laser refractive surgery. And so SMILE was brought to market mo mostly with the idea of less incisions on the cornea leading to less dry eye. There's also a thought of having a better tensile corneal strength or disrupting less of the anterior corneal strength by making the flap. And so trying to keep a, a stronger cornea afterwards. Have you seen enough smile patients to say, yes, they have less dry eye? That's a, that's a difficult question. I've probably seen 25 smile patients, and I'm not sure that I have a, of those 25 can say, yes, they have less dryness than my LASIK patients. I, I haven't had a patient have debilitating dry eye after smile and short term, I've had one or two patients that really struggle with dryness afterwards, but I'm not willing to say um, smile is definitively better for a dry eye standpoint. You know, we talked before about doing uh, refractive surgery, one of the different ones we just talked about on a keratoconus patient, and we don't wanna wind up needing a corneal transplant. That's what we're trying to avoid. And that's why it's so important to find these patients early, like you said. But let's go over the alphabet soup of different types of corneal transplants from PRK to DALK to PK to EK to ALK. If you could kind of explain the alphabet soup of the different types of procedures. Yeah, well, if you characterize these procedures, it's how much of the corneal tissue is replaced or transplanted as well, as well as is it happening on the anterior or the posterior cornea or both. And so I'm gonna actually start with endothelial keratoplasties because in most patients, these won't correspond to keratoconic patients. And so first endothelial keratoplasties, EKs are going to be most commonly now DSEC and DMEC. There's some other iterations where it's ultra thin or nano thin DSEC, but really the idea is the same. DSEC removes a patient's decimase and endothelium, so posterior cornea, and then reinserts some amount, depending on the type of DSEC that's done, some amount of posterior stroma, decimase, and endothelium. A DMEC, decimase membrane endothelial keratoplasty, removes decimase and endothelium, and then the surgeon reinserts decimase and endothelium. No posterior stroma is inserted back into the eye. And so a DMEC is on the scale of at least five times, but more commonly 10 times thinner than a DSEC. Let's then go to the front part of the eye with a deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty or DULC. The surgeon's going to remove the anterior cornea, but leave decimase and endothelium in place. And this is a, sur a surgery that's more commonly done in a keratoconic patient, because if you think of where the corneal tissue is healthy in a keratoconic patient, it's more commonly the posterior cornea that's healthy in these patients. And so the anterior cornea is removed and then transplanted. And then finally, a penetrating keratoplasty or a full thickness cornea transplant. The surgeon goes in, takes a full thickness punch or button from our patient's cornea from a transplant tissue, takes a full thickness punch or button, and then sews 
that button onto our patient's peripheral or host cornea. Besides uh, a full thickness uh, corneal transplant, are there any of the other ones such as DSEC that is using a part of a donor cornea? Yeah, so actually all of these procedures that we just covered are using donor tissue, most commonly from an eye bank or some other um, transplant company, but these are coming from live donor tissues. So the idea is we want to try to prevent this, these keratoconus patients from getting to this point. So let's talk about the management of keratoconus and tell us about now, go into detail about cross-linking. And first about there's FDA approved cross-linking, non-FDA approved. They've been doing cross-linking in other countries for over 20 years or so. And uh, wh why sh should we use an FDA approved cross-linking and what's the advantage of doing it FDA approved? I'm gonna unwind or unbundle those questions and, and I'll give you, of course, my, my strong opinion on this and why what we do in our practice. But I'm gonna start with just what's FDA approved and then what's not FDA approved. So in the US, corneal crosslinking is approved to be done epithelium off, which means we remove the epithelium or the front skin of the cornea. And there's a couple and, of reasons. And there's five layers to this so people know to, to, the, yep. to the cornea and we're removing the front skin, just like an apple, you're taking off the skin of the apple. And, yeah. uh, and so I just want this so the people that are not eye doctors understand that. Yeah, perfect, perfect. I, I like that and I'm gonna steal removing the skin of an apple. Uh, so when we remove the epithelium, the epithelium does a couple things. One, it makes it harder to get the medicine of cross-linking that we'll talk about to penetrate deeper into the cornea. Number two, the epithelium uses a lot of oxygen which is kind of the catalyst for the reaction. And so in the current FDA on label, corneal crosslinking, which is also the one that's best reimbursed by insurance companies, and, and really the only one, we remove the epithelium first. Epithelium on corneal crosslinking in the US would be considered off-label or non-FDA approved. And technically it's really not off-label. For something to be off-label, you have to have an on-label version. And there's really no on-label version of epi on corneal crosslinking in the US. And so this would just be non-FDA approved. With epithelium on cross-linking, there's many studies out there. And one of the debates is, and I won't go into it, but one of the debates is, were some of the patients in the study even progressing in the first place or, or were they just patients who are already stabilized? For why we do only epithelium off corneal cross-linking in our practices, our practice is highly involved in FDA clinical trials. We believe in the stringency and the the protocols and the work that goes into bringing something to market through an FDA pipeline or an FDA protocol. And so we only do epithelium off cross-linking in our practice. For a preview, um, what used to be Avedro and now Glacos has working or is working through FDA clinical trials for epithelium on cross-linking. And there's some changes with leaving the epithelium on to hopefully still get the same outcomes. And this is you know, working through finishing or, or patient recruitment is done for phase three FDA clinical trials. And hopefully we'll see this in the coming years. Our practice was one of the FDA trial sites for this. And so I was lucky enough to be a sub investigator and the initial uh, data release or the initial press release is good. It's very good. And so hopefully this will be a technology with epithelium on cross-linking uh, being approved by the FDA uh, in the coming years, but it's not at this time. 
when do we want to do cross-linking? We know that about 26, 25, 26%, we could reduce corneal transplants if we intervene early with cross-linking. So when do we want to intervene? And uh, it's kind of controversial between even doctors because you can refer to a, a corneal surgeon will say, well, the patient isn't ready for cross-linking, or maybe they're saying it because they're waiting because they have to show progression so they could be covered by insurance. But when is it time? Yeah, I get to give you kind of my unfiltered answer here. And that's, I have a five-year-old son. If he is 10 and we diagnose him with keratoconus, we're going to do cross-linking as absolutely quickly as we can. I'm not going to wait to show progression. We can very safely do corneal cross-linking at the instant that we diagnose definitive keratoconus for a patient. Defining progression is not labeled by the FDA. It's really for insurance companies. And so to get our best reimbursement for corneal cross-linking, we have to be able to show progression for patients. But if it's my son or daughter, we're probably not going to wait six or 12 months to make sure they're getting worse because once we've gotten worse, Remember, keratoconus vision loss is, is fairly irreversible. And so now we've lost some of the tools in our toolbox to correct vision for these patients. One of my good friends, an ophthalmologist in Birmingham, Alabama, Jack Parker, will say, if your house is on fire and you love your house, do you wait until half of it is burned down to call the fire department? Or do you call the fire department when you see the first spark in the maintenance room that's overcrowded with packages and boxes that you don't like anyways? And so we want to have that same approach with keratoconus. I don't like to wait for patients to get a lot worse before we're doing cross-linking. The flip side of that coin is to get our best insurance reimbursement, we do have to show progression. And so that's kind of the debate that you hinted at, Carrie. So take us through the procedure, uh, the FDA approved procedure. What's it called uh, for people watching? And give us the, uh, give us the ABCs on how, to, how it's done. The FDA approved procedure is by a company called Glocos and Glocos has the procedure iLink. It's the same company that makes the iStent or the iStent inject. And in the current form, the procedure, step number one, one of the surgeons in our, our practice will come in and they'll remove the epithelium. We remove the epithelium and then we put riboflavin or vitamin B2 drops on to the cornea for 30 minutes. And so a patient's laying under or laying in a substerile room, we're putting drops onto their cornea. They're able to blink during this time. And this riboflavin or vitamin B2 is the photosensitizer. We're soaking this into the deep corneal tissue, making sure we get good penetration of that riboflavin, the drug. And then we're going to check to make sure we have what we call flare, which is some of that riboflavin in the anterior chamber, or we've got really good penetration and we're going to check the corneal pachymetry. We wanna make sure the cornea is thick enough before we turn on the ultraviolet light. The second you know, main step of the procedure is UV irradiance with ultraviolet light. And this is UVA light at a wavelength of 365 to 370 nanometers. Uh, so thickness, I just interrupt you for a second. You have to get the right thickness. What is that thickness? Is it 400? Yeah, intraoperatively, intra we wanna have the corneal thickness over 400 microns before we turn on the ultraviolet light. This is something that is also debated. This was one of the um, kind of on-label ways of, of doing cross-linking. There's some practitioners and, and surgeons who maybe don't believe that it's as important, but this is the current recommendation is to do this in practices. And the concern is 
endothelial toxicity. So what will the ultraviolet light do to the endothelium? The big key for our listeners and especially optometrists and ophthalmologists is there is no preoperative pachymetry to safely do corneal crosslinking. And so there's nothing in your practice if you say, gosh, I have a 370 micron cornea, I can't refer this patient for crosslinking. It's not true because during the riboflavin soak, we can use a hypo uh, osmotic to push uh, fluid into the cornea. And so we can use something that's going to push water into that cornea, which is Fotrexa, if you're using the iLink procedure, and that's going to swell the cornea. And so you can get a, a patient who has a 350 micron cornea up above 400 pretty easily using that riboflavin that is has very little solute and is full of water. The cornea will soak that up. And how long is the, is the UV light on? Yeah, great question. It's a long procedure. It's 30 minutes of riboflavin, 30 minutes of ultraviolet light in the current FDA-approved protocol, what's called the Dresden protocol. And so after that 30 minutes of ultraviolet light, during that time, the patient's still having some riboflavin dropped on, most commonly by one of our laser nurses. The final step is that we're going to put a bandage contact lens on that cornea. Very similar to PRK, it starts with removing the epithelium and it finishes with using some type of bandage over the cornea. Explain the oxygen reaction catalyst. Yeah, great. Why is that important? Great question. And so when we have riboflavin soaked into the cornea and we shine UV light on it, this causes singlet oxygen molecules and free radicals. And there's only so many of those to get the reaction going. And so if you don't have oxygen, the reaction will start and then it almost just burns out. Oxygen is the catalyst that keeps it going because you're making more singlet oxygen molecules, more free radicals. And so having either oxygen because the epithelium is removed or additional oxygen put onto the cornea is going to speed up and enhance the cross-linking chemical reaction. Now, do we have to worry about the white part or the transition between the cornea and the white part called the limbus being treated and having damage at, of that part of the eye? With corneal crosslinking, the surgeon makes about a nine millimeter epithelial defect. If you think back to corneal anatomy, cornea is 11 to 12 meters, depending if you're measuring vertical or horizontal. And so the limbus and the conjunctiva should be unharmed with corneal crosslinking. Now, the end result of crosslinking, it makes the cornea stiffer. Explain how that works and the stiffness and why it's important. So corneal crosslinking, this chemical reaction leads to shortening and thickening of the collagen fibrils. And so almost think of small little crosslinks on a rope. It makes these small little molecules, which are actually covalent bonds to stiffen the cornea. And so it shortens and strengthens the collagen. It leads to thickening. And really it's these small little crosslinks. Almost if you take a ladder and you have the two sides of the ladder, we're just adding more steps in between, which is going to make that structure stronger, these small little crosslinks. And explain the, uh, how safe it is and how well it works. What do the studies show? Yeah, phase three, the pivotal FDA approval trial in the US was done on 200 patients. 100 of them had the initial cross-linking procedure and then 100 of them were in the control group or had the placebo. And at one year, there was a 2.6 diopter difference in Kmax. And so the patients who were cross-linked actually got some flattening and the patients who were the control group progressed. 
And so the key there with the clinical outcomes is when I'm educating and talking with patients, the goal of corneal crosslinking is to freeze the cornea in place or halt the progression to stop it from getting worse. But in the FDA clinical trial, the average patient actually got better. Their corneal shape became more normal. And so it was very efficacious in both the patients who had progressive keratoconus and who had refractive surgery ectasia. But it's not, it can't take the place of refractive surgery. I fully agree. Corneal crosslinking is not a procedure that is similar to LASIK or PRK, where a patient will sit up afterwards and go, wow, I can see so well. They'll actually probably see a little bit worse after crosslinking in its current form because we've removed the epithelium. But down the road, the average patient gains about one line of visual acuity if you're using the FDA pivotal data. From a safety standpoint, this is a very safe procedure. We can have some signs that we will see afterwards. One of the big ones there is some anterior corneal haze. The corneal haze is going to lessen and go away over time, and it's almost always thought to be non-visually significant. One to 2% of patients may have some persistent haze, just using some data from the clinical trial. One of the big things is you can have, uh, and you will have real pain and discomfort afterwards because we've removed the epithelium. And so managing patients' post-operative pain and discomfort is a big key. And then things like punctate keratitis, risk of infection, all very, very low. In the end though, if about 15% of the people actually gained three, three uh, lines of vision, which I thought was pretty significant in reading the studies. Yeah, most definitely. You know, the average patient gains one line of vision, uh, about 20% of patients maybe gain two and maybe 15% of patients gain three lines of vision. And so I think of corneal crosslinking as really a tool that opens up the refractive toolbox. And so we crosslink patients first, and then we can come back and use all these technologies like soft contacts, hard contacts, or, or specialty contact lenses, glasses, interest corneal ring segments or intacts. And I think the future is bright for topography guided laser vision correction in these patients as well. And there's some of that being done in the US and, and OUS already. And is there an age limit on this? Approved by the FDA or on label is age 14 to 65. This is also one of my favorite things to debate. And if I'm giving a presentation, maybe my favorite slide in the deck is that, does that mean that we can't crosslink a 12 year old? Absolutely not. That's the patient that's probably at even a higher risk of progression who probably needs cross-linking more. This was just the parameters that they used for the FDA clinical trial. And so we're doctors, we get to make decisions and do what's right for our patient. And so we've in our practice cross-linked an eight-year-old boy who did really well. And does that mean you can't cross-link a 70-year-old? We cross-linked a 67-year-old in our practice uh, in the last 18 months. It's not very common because we talked about in the very onset of our time that most of the time, these are corneas that are maybe strengthened or non-progressing once we get past the age of 65. This was a patient that was an aggressive eye rubber. She actually came in for cataract surgery. We did her biometry and we said, gosh, this is a patient that has keratoconus. She said, yeah, my vision's changing pretty rapidly. She didn't have a lot of cataracts, she had some, but, but maybe not to the extent of where her visual acuity was measuring. And we said, let's pump the brakes here and repeat these measurements in six months. She came back. It was progressing. We said, uh, let's still recheck in three months. She progressed again. And so we ended up cross-linking that patient before cataract surgery. And when can you do the other eye? How long do you have to wait? Most commonly in our practice, we do our cross-linking procedures about four to six weeks apart. 
And the reason why is you're removing the epithelium. It takes about a week to get the epithelium to heal back together. You have variable and fluctuating vision in that time. And so we don't ever want to have a patient who gets blurrier in both eyes kind of at the same time. The exception to that rule is maybe a patient who has some type of time constraint in their life. We have done bilateral cross-linking procedures for certain, uh, you know, one-off situations where a patient had to get it done. They flew to see us to get it done, maybe. Um, also, patients with intellectual delays who have just a lot of anxiety who maybe need a little bit more um, sedation for the procedure. We've done bilateral cross-linking as well. And the cornea can actually flatten up to like 36 months. Is, is that correct? Yeah, there, I mean, there's some studies that are now out to 10 years with corneal cross-linking using the Dresden or epithelium off protocol that's showing some changes even out to 10 years. There's a definitive study that said K-Max was changing seven years after the procedure. And they don't, you don't use a speculum. And what, what would the reason be for that? So speculum is used on and off. One of the big reasons that we don't, uh, we, you know, try to prioritize not using a speculum is for corneal dehydration. The cornea dries out. This can be a patient that has more of that punctate keratitis afterwards, but probably even more importantly, a patient who has dehydration will, will struggle a little bit to have the cornea hydrate and get to that 400 micron number before we start UV irradiance. And who is cross-linking contraindicated in? Yeah, currently, corneal cross-linking would be contraindicated in a pregnant female. And that's mostly because we just don't know the effects of riboflavin on, on baby. A second one would be a patient with an active infectious keratitis. Now, many of our listeners have probably read or at least heard of using corneal cross-linking for some of our bad corneal infections. And there was some studies that were done on that. But currently, that would be contraindicated in the U.S. for patients who have an active infectious keratitis. As we finish up, I just got a couple more questions. Uh, one about Intax. Can you explain when someone should use Intax? Are they really used that much anymore and how effective are they? Yeah, Intax are intracorneal ring segments, ICRS or intrastromal ring segments. There's kind of some different, but Intax are basically half moon or arc-like segments. They're made of a hard plastic material called PMMA. It's like an acrylic. And those intacts are added to reshape the cornea. Intacts were actually first approved by the FDA to treat myopia or nearsightedness, and then later got approval for keratoconus. And we are, are very fond or have a high affinity to intacts in our practice. We actually use them quite frequently. And the number one reason that in our practice we use intacts in a keratoconic patient is maybe a patient who just can't tolerate can't maneuver or handle a special contact lens and they don't have adequate glasses vision to do the things that they need to do. And they're unable to wear a, a special hard contact lens. And so we'll use intacts to try to reshape, kind of move that cone so that we can get better glasses vision. And so kind of the, the number that we use as a patient who's best corrected in glasses 2040 to 2060, we're going to start considering using intacts. Another situation where I really like Intex is a patient with pellucid marginal degeneration. We talked about a patient who has a more inferior cone. If we can use that intact to kind of lift the cone, centralize that cone, the glasses vision will often be better afterwards. Sometimes the uncorrected visual acuity will be better as well. And what does the future look like as far as like say topography guided uh, uh, cross-linking or with PRK or 
How, how does the future look? Yeah, two of the things I'm maybe most excited about in optometry or ophthalmology and eye care is topography guided corneal crosslinking. If we can use the posterior floater, use the topography to guide how much of our riboflavin, how much of our UV irradiance is on certain spots of the cornea, now corneal crosslinking not only becomes a treatment that stabilizes the cornea, but if we can get kind of customized flattening of the cornea, now we're going to improve the visual acuity at the same time. And so I'm really excited about customized corneal crosslinking or topography guided crosslinking. It's probably not on the horizon in the next year or two, maybe not even three or four years. And so, but I think that's something that they're doing, you know, they're definitely doing it outside of the US right now and getting some pretty cool results. And so looking at the results out of Europe and some of the European Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgeons data is, is really exciting and, and fun to watch. Use want to, I'm sorry. Uh, people want to know if you could do wear contact lenses after cross-linking. Yeah, you can most definitely wear contact lenses after cross-linking. You can wear soft contact lenses. You can wear hard or specialty contact lenses. Most commonly in our practice, we've kind of moved to using scleral contact lenses, which is a bigger lens and actually sits on the white part of the eye. And then you kind of asked about doing topography guided laser vision correction, which for a keratoconic patient most commonly is going to be PRK where we're not making the flap. And there's the Athens protocol, which is Dr. Kenilopoulos who's doing this. Others are doing it both in the US and outside the US where they're combining doing cross-linking and topography guided PRK either at the same time or in a sequential fashion to get patients cross-linked so that the cornea is stronger, but to also get vision correction at the same time or shortly after by remodeling or changing the shape of the cornea with the laser. And would that be with a keratoconic patient? Yes. Yep. That would be in a keratoconic patient. And so we have kind of modified that. We haven't done concurrent cross-linking and PRK topography guided in our practice, but I think I have four or five patients now who have had cross-linking and then we bring them back about a year later. And if they're motivated, we'll come back and do topography guided PRK. And I think for eye care providers, we have to change how we think about PRK in these patients rather than trying to go from patients can only wear special hard contact lenses to now I'm waking up seeing 2020 without anything. That's probably not realistic. But for me, my results have been more Patients could only wear special hard contact lenses. Now they have functional vision without anything, but they can see really well in glasses and soft contact lenses. And so we've kind of went from only being able to wear hard lenses to being able to wear soft lenses. And maybe if they're just laying in bed at night watching TV, they do it without anything. There's a technique called orthokeratology where you gently reshape the eye where they contact lens and the patient sleeps in this at night and they wake up in the morning and they don't need glasses or contacts. And for many people, especially kids, it's very successful. Do you see a time where you do ortho-K and then add cross-linking to it? So you set the eye with the, you set the eye with the contact lens and then you cross-link it and you stabilize the eye so they don't, they no longer have to wear the contact lens. Yeah, great question and kind of great thought here. Um, I'll be very honest, I'm not an expert in orthokeratology, so I would have to phone a friend. I, of course, know of the technology, but don't do it on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis in our practice. But I think of orthokeratology as kind of like a retainer. We're just kind of shaping the eye at night and then not wearing the lenses during the day. 
I think of that mostly being on the anterior cornea. And so if we have a keratoconus patient, a lot of the bulging and instability is on the backside of the cornea. So I don't think it can be a treatment alone. If we could just do it after cross-linking, I think my concern would be the epithelial remodeling and how the epithelium tries to fill in cracks to see if that would be a viable long-term treatment where we could do cross-linking, uh, excuse me, do ortho-K first, get the cornea in the shape that we want, and then kind of freeze it into place with cross-link. I don't think it would work exactly as proposed. I used to think of that in a similar fashion in patients with intacts as well. If we did intacts first, we could move the cornea to the position we wanted to be in and then cross-link it or freeze it. And we just had, you know, changes and variable outcomes. Probably one of the big ones just being, you know, there's seven and 10 year results of the cornea changing after cross-linking. And so it's not as easy as just kind of the easy bake oven, set it and forget it. So as far as contact lenses and fitting them with uh, keratoconus, do you have uh, a favorite type of contact lens? Are you, are you a hybrid fan, sclerals? Uh, now there's a soft contact lens for keratoconus, Novacone that people are pretty successful with. Where do you, where do you stand with that? Yeah, we have all three of those technologies you just mentioned in our practice. Um, specialty contact lenses is something that I do for patients. I'm, I'm not maybe on the national st stage speaking about it or one of the experts. I have lots of uh, colleagues and friends that are. For me, my fastball is a scleral contact lens. I just feel like I can get good vision, um, magical improvements in vision. And in a lot of my patients' comfort, we can get very good. And it's a, uh, for me, straightforward kind of cookbook step of how I'm going to get them to that spot. And I think these technologies have really advanced and using the tools that we have in our practice where we can look at the cornea and sclera, kind of how that profile fits and where the lens is going to land. I'm able to have a, you know, 90% success rate in fitting almost any of my irregular cornea patients with a scleral contact lens. Some of my colleagues may disagree, but that's the fastball for me. Well, I want to thank Dr. Mitch Eibach for joining me today with rapid fire questions. He did, he's an amazing source of knowledge. And if someone out there wants to find out more about you or they want to see you as a patient, how could they do that? Yeah. And so my email address is my first name, Mitch dot Eibach, I as an igloo, B as in boy, A-C-H at VanceThompsonVision.com. That's probably the easiest way to find me is just to shoot me an email. I'm also on Instagram. I'm also on Twitter at Mitchell, M-I-T-C-H-E-L, Ibach, and then also on LinkedIn. And so any of those social media platforms, but email is also a, a great way. I want to say thanks to you, Carrie, for having me on as a guest. I'm, I'm just getting a little sweaty here from all the, the questions you were throwing at, but it was a, a really fun time. And I look forward to being able to have colleagues and patients be able to watch this and learn more about keratoconus and, and further um, advocacy and awareness for this disease. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And it's great to present the all-stars of optometry, Dr. Mitch Eibach. Thank you again for joining me. And then for, for, for the Open Your Eyes podcast, this is Dr. Kerry Gill. Until next time, thank you. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat.
es natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.